Welcome to the River of Florida True Crime Podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. And this week, I am going to delve into a really big story that happened on Palm Beach in 1991. And I actually wrote about it in my true crime book that I researched regarding Cheryl Anna Rougeau, who is the accuser, that's the name of the book. In 1983, she was victimized by men, the judicial system, the government, and the media, and the Portuguese mob because she stood up against all of them in the Big Dan's rape trial. Actually, there were two of them in New Bedford, Massachusetts in 1988. And Jodie Foster portrayed a character loosely based on Cheryl Arujo in the Hollywood movie The Accused, for which she won an Academy Award. And Foster's character was gang-raped on a pinball machine rather than a pool table. But by the time the movie was released, Cheryl was already dead. And after the rape trials, she was run out of Massachusetts due to death threats. And in 1986, she died in a single car accident in South Florida. Her two young daughters were with her when her car swerved out of control and they survived. They recall what happened that fateful day in my book. It's a true story on what the government in Hollywood don't want you to know regarding one young woman's fight as an accuser to tell her true story to a jury and to the world without being victim blamed. Well, you're going to hear a little bit about that coming up. Cheryl was one of the first accusers to face a camera in the courtroom, shaping the way the media and judicial system covers rape trials today. Her grueling experience also planted the first seeds of today's burgeoning Me Too movement. The book contains never-before-published information, interviews, and photographs about the life and death of Cheryl Arujo, one of the most tragic accusers and heroines in American history. Well, this podcast is about another brave accuser. Ultimately, what this trial came down to is credibility. The credibility of the accused and of the accuser. For they are the only eyewitnesses. So that's actually a reporter referring to the William Kennedy Smith rape trial that happened shortly after Cheryl's death here in South Florida. In fact, Cheryl's senator, Senator Ted Kennedy, D-Mass, who did absolutely nothing to help her, no rape shield legislation, even sat on the Senate Judiciary Committee and investigated the impact the media had on her case and on rape victims. Then in 1991 was called by the prosecution to explain what happened the night he and his nephew, William Kennedy Smith, went out for drinks at O-Bar on Palm Beach. It was Easter Sunday. And the two took two women back to the Kennedy compound, which, by the way, had no air conditioning at the time. It was a dump. <laughs> well, this is really about another Me Too victim who was another tragic accuser and heroine in American history, Patty Bowman. Here's chapter 23, The Kennedys and the Blue Dot from my book, The Accuser. Destroy someone's career, attack someone's family. I can't understand that. I understand Patty Bowman has a lot of problems. All of those things make me feel very sorry for Patty Bowman. But that's not the issue here. The issue here is I'm innocent. And how do you defend yourself from somebody who says the word rape over and over again. That's William Kennedy Smith just before Easter on Good Friday, March 30th, 1991. 30-year-old William Kennedy Smith and his uncle, Senator Ted Kennedy, picked up two young women during a long night of bar hopping on the exclusive island of Palm Beach. All four went back to the Kennedy's beachfront mansion, the Kennedy Estate, at three in the morning. 
The woman who willingly accompanied the goofy, aspiring doctor was 30-year-old Patricia Bowman, who lived in a home in Jupiter that was bought for her by her stepfather, Michael G. O'Neill, the former chairman of the General Tire and Rubber Company. She recounted that after some awkward petting on the beach, Kennedy Smith tackled her by the pool and raped her, thus earning her the unfortunate nickname by the callous media, Patio Furniture. What happened once you were on the ground? Uh, he had me on the ground and I was trying to get out from underneath of him because he was crushing me. And he had my arm and, and I was yelling, no, stop. And I tried to arch my back to get him off of me. And he slammed me back into the ground. And then he... He pushed my dress up, and he, he raped me, and I thought he was going to kill me. Now, this alleged date rape on Friday night in Palm Beach would generally have not moved the interest meter in the press had it not involved a Kennedy. Now, the accused was the nephew of the late president, John F. Kennedy, and a sitting U.S. Senator, Edward Kennedy, who was seen later that evening walking around the Kennedy compound without his pants. Just like Cheryl, Patty Bowman was also an unwed mother, and both women were basically unknowns. Cheryl's rape trials were watched by millions of viewers because of the shocking, salacious circumstances of the gang rape on a new Bedford pool table, not because any of the participants were noteworthy. Millions tuned in to watch Bowman's He Said, She Said drama play out on their television screens because a Kennedy was involved, making it a case of political and civic interest. The New York Times identified the alleged rape victim with an expose on her past in an article on Friday, April 27, 1991, a month after the crime in question and before her rape trial. The article was entitled, Woman in Florida Rape Inquiry Fought Adversity and Sought Acceptance. The paper rationalized reporting all the dirty details about Patricia O'Neill, a.k.a. Patricia Bowman's life. With this disclaimer, it remains the Times' practice to guard the identities of sex crime complainants so long as it is possible and conforms to fair journalistic standards. In cases of major political or civic interest, that practice needs to be continually reviewed. And as the Times explained when it finally disclosed the name of the woman in the case, it did so only after her identity became known throughout her community and received detailed nationwide publicity. The newly implemented cameras in the courtroom policy was still extant in Florida courtrooms and technological advances made it easier to actually show the alleged victim on the stand and yet still shield her face from the camera. In Cheryl's trials, a lens cap was placed on the camera during her testimony. As a result, the screen went black and no part of her body was shown to the audience. Only her voice was heard. Cheryl Arujo. In Patricia Bowman's case, a more high-tech solution was devised. An electronic blue blob was placed over her face. Critics claimed that the blue blob that hid the face of Patricia Bowman from television viewers served more as an electronic scarlet letter than witness protection. The accusers' faces were always visible in the courtroom to both juries and to the defendants who had a legal right to confront them. Ultimately, as predicted by the Kennedy family, William Kennedy Smith was acquitted of rape and battery charges late in the afternoon of December 11, 1991, after 10 days of trial and 77 minutes of jury deliberations. State of Florida versus William Kennedy Smith. 
We, the jury, find as follows. As to count one, we find the defendant not guilty. As to count two, we find the defendant not guilty. And after William Kennedy Smith was acquitted of raping her, all bets were off because one television station in South Florida was ready and immediately removed the blue dot revealing Patricia Bowman's true identity. The local ABC affiliate, WPBF in West Palm Beach, aired the breaking news story on the 5.30 p.m. newscast a half hour after the not guilty verdict was handed down. Now that the defendant was exonerated, the alleged victim was no longer considered a victim and became a target. So what happened was... My boss, yeah, I, I was actually on the air. I was the 5.30 anchor. My boss, Lee Polachek, the news director, was super smart. And he said, hey, if he's acquitted, we're going to remove the blue dot because we had a clean feed and we had the blue dot feed. The electronic blue dot that had covered the victim, Patricia Bowman's face, and protected her identity was dissolved off the screen, showing her true face to the audience, eager to see the woman who'd caused all the chaos for the Kennedy family. We were ready when the jury came back with a not guilty verdict at 5 o'clock. We led with the breaking news story at the top of the 5.30 newscast, and boom, Bowman's face appeared to a shocked West Palm Beach television audience for the first time. It was very dramatic for a medium-sized television market and was permitted because her accused rapist was acquitted. Bowman was no longer protected by the rape shield law, and as a result, victim advocates claimed that rape victims would no longer report their brutal crimes to law enforcement for fear of being raped all over again due to the publicity. The removal of the blue dots surprisingly revealed that the victim turned vixen appeared prim in contrast to her reputation. The press had disclosed defense dirt that Bowman had aborted three babies, had one child out of wedlock, and had used cocaine. The jury didn't hear these salacious facts. She isn't at all what I expected was the general response from those who finally saw the image of her sitting conservatively on the witness stand. Bowman was passably pretty, but not beautiful. Her brown hair was cut shoulder length with bangs brushed off to the side. Her clothing selection was subdued, charcoal gray suit, single strand of pearls, and a small gold angel pin. Bowman would later shed the blue dot on her own volition and do an on-camera interview with Diane Sawyer. She said she came out from behind the electronic dot that obscured her face during the trial to show that you can survive. Bowman told Diane Sawyer, I am not a blue blob. I am a human being. I have nothing to be ashamed of. So the next chapter is chapter 24, The Deft Defense. And this explains what happened during the William Kennedy Smith trial and how his defense attorney, Roy Black, got him acquitted. Adroit defense attorney Roy Black, who successfully defended William Kennedy Smith, looked more like a gentle pediatrician. He was masterful and exhibited the accidental aplomb of James Bond. By contrast, Mousy Bland, assistant attorney of Palm Beach County, Maura Lash, was cut from the same cloth as Marsha Clark, the lead prosecutor in the O.J. trial of the century. Both missed the judicial mark by concentrating on the boring, picayune discrepancies in the case, such as the timeline of the events that night of the alleged rape. Plus, the judge tied Lash's hands by not allowing her to bring up Kennedy Smith's prior bad acts. Judge Mary Lupo disallowed without comment the testimony of three other women who claimed that they were sexually assaulted by Smith between 1983 and 1988. 
Those accusers were a doctor, a medical student, and a law student who at the time was the girlfriend of Smith's cousin, Matthew Maxwell Kennedy. It would appear that there was a pattern of behavior in this case, but the jury did not hear about it. Most judges abide by a general rule that the trial and prosecution cannot introduce evidence of uncharged crimes. One juror who ended up marrying Roy Black and becoming a real housewife of Miami explains why they acquitted him. The then 37-year-old cosmetics executive was quoted by the Associated Press saying, The condition of the dress the woman wore the night of the incident, lacking tears or stains, was an important factor in her decision. The dress was an issue for me. No evidence on the dress, she said. Mr. Black had argued that the dress showed Mr. Smith's accuser was not raped. Generally, state prosecutors are no match for a defense attorney that rich defendants like O.J. and the Kennedys can afford. Prosecutor Maura Lash, who was 40 at the time, had a near 100% conviction rate and was considered the star in her office. In 1987, she was named Prosecutor of the Year. She asked William Kennedy Smith incredulously, what are you, some kind of sex machine, when he stated that he ejaculated twice within minutes, once when Bowman allegedly gave him a hand job on the beach, and then again, after a short swim, he allegedly attacked her by the pool. Um, I thought that we were going to have sex, and... Uh I walked over to her and we kissed and I put the towel down in the sand and we got uh, on the towel and... What happened on the towel? We started to neck. Well, she uh, unbuttoned my pants and uh, I took her panties off and uh, with her help and uh, we embraced and I uh, could feel her. I put my hands on her and uh, she was... Uh, excited and um, I asked her if she had any birth control what was her response she said we better be careful she sort of sat up and I rolled off to the side and she put her hands on me where did she put her hands she put her hands on my penis and what did she do she massaged me and what were you doing at this time Uh, I was kissing her and so what happened? Um, I, uh, I ejaculated. And then William Kennedy Smith tells the jury why he thinks Patty Bowman cried rape. After a while, we were moving together on the lawn, and I got more excited, and, uh, uh, and I thought I was maybe going to ejaculate inside of her. And, uh, so what happened? Well, I held her. Uh, very tightly and I I stopped moving and I told her to uh, stop it and I called her Kathy. The minute I said it I knew that it was a mistake. She sort of uh, she sort of snapped. In what way? She got very very upset and she told me to get the hell off of her. And what did she do? And she hit me with her hand. And then what happened? And I rolled off of her, and she got up and and uh, marched off, and I called after her, Patty. Well, Patty's version of events was a little different. What happened once you were on the ground? Uh, he had me on the ground, and I was trying to get out from underneath of him because he was crushing me, and he had my arm, and, and I was yelling, no. 
and I tried to arch my back to get him off of me, and he slammed me back into the ground, and then he, he pushed my dress up, and he, he raped me, and I thought he was going to kill me. Wow, that's really, really powerful. William Kennedy Smith then said on the stand that even as Patty was leaving and was driving away, she stopped and asked for his phone number. And she said to me, um, what's your phone number? What'd you say? I said, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm just down here for a couple days and I don't know my phone number and I'm leaving in a couple of days. What was her response? She said, um, tell it to Kathy. And then what she and she drove away. Yeah. So Senator Ted Kennedy was with his nephew the night in question. In fact, part of the evidence was his conversation with William Kennedy Smith the morning after the alleged rape. They were sitting at the bar at Chuck and Harold's restaurant on Palm Beach. And the incriminating conversation was overheard by the bartender who testified at the rape trial. But officially, Ted Kennedy said he knew nothing about the rape until after he returned to Washington. And the first time I knew that there was an allegation of rape was on Monday afternoon. I mean, the Kennedy family never seemed in doubt about the outcome of the trial from day one. There were hushed whispers of plans for a victory party that actually came to pass. The celebration would include the defense attorney and the juror they told you about who he would later marry. Kennedy's family's arrivals and departures from the Palm Beach County Courthouse in West Palm Beach were greeted with cheers from the adoring crowd. Even Judge Lupo was not immune to the Kennedy charisma and posed for a photo with Sergeant Shriver in her courtroom. Also, the use of the term Kennedy estate or compound was changed to Kennedy home at the request of one of the Kennedy relatives who thought it made the scene of the crime sound too regal. The Camelot family prince, John F. Kennedy Jr., was obligated and showed up in the courtroom to support his cousin as a favor to the family. JFK ran the media gauntlet in front of the courthouse and attended the trial twice during jury selection against the wishes of his mother, Jackie Onassis, according to the book, RFK Jr. and the Dark Side of the Dream. Here's a jubilant William Kennedy Smith outside the courthouse after he was found not guilty. I have an enormous debt to the, to the system, uh, to God, and I have a terrific faith in both of them, and I'm just really, really happy. So see you guys later. <laughs> so Senator Kennedy would testify on his nephew's behalf, and the mere presence of the Lion of the Senate in the West Palm Beach courtroom was intimidating, overwhelming, and denuding for the prosecutor, the jury, and the judge. When the senator walked into the courtroom, he waved to Willie. <laughs> What's he called? William Kennedy Smith. Willie. And everything about him, including his hair, suit, and tie, was perfect. It was as if he was attending another Kennedy wedding instead of testifying as a witness in a rape trial. He owned the afternoon and the jury. His aura sucked the oxygen out of the courtroom. The bailiff's hand trembled as he held the Bible and asked Kennedy if he promised to tell the truth, the whole truth. So help me God. He was God. Famed defense attorney Roy Black, who would go on to represent radio god Rush Limbaugh and heartthrob Justin Bieber, 
was the only human in the courtroom not intimidated by the senator. In such circumstances, courtroom demeanor invariably decides the day. You're like, why was Justin Bieber arrested? Just a little refresher on that one. Oh, and by the way, I did a podcast about Rush Limbaugh and his whole situation with prescription drugs. But Bieber was charged with driving under the influence, driving his Lamborghini, resisting arrest without violence, and driving with an expired license. According to Bieber, the police just wanted press. They wanted attention. I was never speeding. I was never drag racing. The Biebs ultimately pled guilty to careless driving and resisting arrest. He had a good attorney. And Roy Black was so good in the William Kennedy Smith trial, the jury never knew the accuser, Patty Bowman, had passed two polygraph tests and a voice test analysis. After the verdict, she would lament, it's the acquittal that money can buy. She pointed out that the defense had nine months to concoct a story based on her five statements, witness statements, and all the forensic evidence. Kennedy Smith never gave a pre-trial statement. She heard for the first time what he had to say on the witness stand. And that's what he did. He concocted a story, she alleged. Despite the perceived imbalance of evidentiary sharing and prosecutorial inadequacy, Bowman's testimony was powerful. Her performance forced defense attorney Roy Black's hand. He had to put the defendant on the stand. And years later, Patricia Bowman was asked to comment on her case and on the alleged rape case against Los Angeles Laker Kobe Bryant. She said, quote, everyone deserves the protections the law affords without being victimized again. These kinds of smear tactics have been used for years. She was especially angered by the tactics used by defense attorney Roy Black. She cites studies that say only one in 16 rapists are convicted and imprisoned. That means there are 15 out there, she said. Instead of blaming the victims, we need to concentrate on getting these people off the street. Along with the Persian Gulf War, the Supreme Court confirmation of Clarence Thomas and the resignation of Mikhail Gorbachev, Smith's trial was one of the most watched television events in 1991, and it was shaped by the events of the Big Dan's rape trial. The cameras in the courtroom, the blue dot, the facts to which the jury was not privy, the victim blaming were all a byproduct of Cheryl's experience. Again, to visit all of these cases and more, you can get my book, The Accuser. It's available on Amazon or Kindle. Also, check me out on Instagram at Full Rigor Podcast. Until next time, that wraps up Full Rigor. Thanks for listening.